Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And we're going Round Springfield. Welcome to our special quarantine episode. Let's just hit it up top. Let's be real. Everyone is in a different room. We, uh, I assume we're still smiling at each other, but who knows? Mm. I mean, we could be shaking fists at each other, flipping each other off the whole time. Um, but no, we are making it work as so many other people are making it work right now in this very bizarre time in all of our lives. And uh, yeah, no, it's it's the fact that we can still record a podcast to talk about the Simpsons and comedy and other non Simpsons things is truly, you know, one of the positives of this whole oh, yeah. situation. It's what the pioneers dreamed of. I know. <laughs> I can't tell you how close I feel to the the characters in Little Women and how they would have podcasted no matter what famine had hit them. Exactly. And everyone is talking about how uh, Shakespeare wrote King Lear when he was quarantined. I think this is going to be better because we have an awesome guest today who's much funnier than Shakespeare. I want to go out of the gate and say Shakespeare is kind of shitty when it comes to writing jokes. Yeah. I want to say that Shakespeare sucks. He's a little flowery for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Julia, can you bring him into the show? All right. You know him. You love him. Uh, he has worked on so many incredible things. Of course, The Simpsons, but also he's been a writer on It's Gary Shandling Show, The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, Teen Angel, which we will get to. It is a personal favorite of mine. <laughs> so many other amazing things. Please welcome Mike Reese. Hi, folks. It's nice to be back. Yeah. How's <laughs> that for funny? Yes, I hate <laughs> Shakespeare. I hate his comedy. I have a play that will be performed in Utah this summer if if we're all out of our homes called Shakespeare's Worst. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was this idea I had. I said, let's find Shakespeare's Worst play. And then I said, oh, shoot, I'm not going to read a bunch of Shakespeare plays to find the worst. So I called my friend who's a Shakespeare expert and uh, he said, do two gentlemen of Verona. So the play is just a straight production of two gentlemen of Verona, <laughs> but one kind of background character in the play knows the show sucks and he can't <laughs> stop talking to the audience about it. And there's so much about how rotten Shakespeare's jokes are. It's it's really, it was, it sounds like sort of a limited idea and there was plenty of material to carry <laughs> all the way through the show. Yeah, I don't love Shakespeare. I'm not a total <laughs> fan, but I, I know, you know, at least what I can speak about professionally as a comedy guy, his comedy sucks. His jokes are awful. I bite my thumb at his comedy. <laughs> his his comedy is just about like, what if a donkey wore a hat? Right. Yeah. It's a lot of bad puns. There was a really funny show in LA I went to see because I go, all right, I'm going to give him another shot. And it was called Stand Up Shakespeare. And it was just, here's the funny bits from Shakespeare, monologues and little scenes. And that's it. They condensed 38 plays here's the funniest 90 minutes and they put on this show and there wasn't a laugh in it not all the way through 
<laughs> That's great. I can't believe the odds that I happened to bring up uh, King Lear and say that Shakespeare's unfunny and then you happen to have uh, this play. Um, I feel like I might have uh, some magic abilities that I was unsure of before. Um, so I'm going to predict that this ends very soon and that we're all gainfully employed and making a lot of money. <laughs> I'm excited for that to happen. Me too. So Mike, we are very excited to have you on the show. Yeah. Obviously we love what you've done on the Simpsons. We're pretty big Simpsons fans. Um, we, yeah. we, we want to uh, commend you for writing an infinitely better book than we did. It seems very <laughs> unfair. It's very unfair that they came out at the same time. What was our editor thinking? But incredible book. Um, I know that we have talked about in the past and our listeners have almost certainly, if they're listening to a podcast about The Simpsons, they've definitely read the book by someone who's so instrumental to the show. But just in case, um, is there anything you'd like to share about your book for, for newcomers? During these times of quarantine, people are so bored, they might actually read a book. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so I recommend picking up uh, Springfield Confidential. I forgot the name of my own book. It's, uh, I do that a lot too. <laughs> yeah, Springfield Confidential. And uh, that was it. It's it's a book about my 30 years at The Simpsons. And it came out good. The fans are happy. They are the toughest people to please. There, so there was no negative feedback. It also... I didn't lose my job over it, which I thought was a possibility. So I recommend you read it or even get the audio book. It's free on Audible. It's me reading. So if you're annoyed by the sound of my voice, imagine this in your head for seven and a half trade hours. That's great. We were sent an email from the publishers, the publishers of our book um, saying like, great news. We are uh, we just got this deal to do an audiobook. And Julia and I were just like, OK, great. Yeah. Whenever you want to record. And they're just like, no, no, we've already recorded it with, oh. with professionals. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, I was at both times offended and relieved. Me too. I was like, oh, that, that's great because I truly don't want like a seven and a half hour recording of my voice talking about bullshit. It's crazy because you guys are great and you're on air personalities and you're professionals. This is what happened with that book is uh, before my book came out, another Simpsons writer wrote a book is Joel Cohen, who may be the funniest man at The Simpsons. He's the guy who makes me laugh the most. Joel Cohen wrote a book called How to Lose a Marathon about his running the New York Marathon. And the book is so funny. It's not as funny as mine, but, <laughs> <laughs> but after you read my book and your book, then you should read Joel Cohen's book. But so Joel is one of the funniest guys in the world. And then the audio book, they had this very proper Englishman read the do the audio book wow. this guy, it, was, it was like benedict cumberbatch or something and he he killed every joke in the book oh no and so funny so that was it i saw that happen and i i had to fight really hard uh to get the rights to read my own audio book there's something funny about uh, a, an autobiography being read by someone completely different from you though like that adds a new <laughs> level of comedy like if a if a very young woman or a very like old old person was reading your book, that's that adds some. Yeah, like to if me. Tilda Swinton went on about like Conan stories with his Ford Taurus, <laughs> like <laughs> I I think that that would elevate the material. No offense to you, but it would. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so we we kind of want to get into uh, the the beginning of your life and eventually lead into your career uh, and hear about uh, maybe why you didn't love Harvard as much as some people might assume that you would. Um, but first off, uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your folks. Uh, so I read that your mom was a journalist and your dad was a doctor and that you are the middle child of five, which seems very appropriate for a comedy writer. <laughs> but can you talk about growing up with parents that were in it seems to be very esteemed uh, professions and what it was kind of like growing up that you kind of found yourself emerging into this creative space? Yeah, it's... Uh... Um, it was a funny family, even though, you know, dad was a doctor. He was a funny doctor. People liked to be <laughs> around him. And my mother was a very, she was a local journal journalist, uh, but it was always very light stuff. And she had a very breezy style and that's it. It's a big family sort of driven by comedy. Like my sister is a speech therapist, but she, she wrote a joke book for speech therapists. So <laughs> Everybody loves comedy in the house. And uh, in fact, I, I think they had the least hope for me because I was a super quiet kid. And that was it. I was sort of absorbing and analyzing and thinking <laughs> while everyone else was just being silly and having fun. So uh, that's it. I'm the only one making a living at it. Everyone else in my family <laughs> is a teacher and I'm the guy who supports them all. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but just the quality of being an observer is like such a writerly quality. Like you just yeah, hear yeah. it a lot of just like, you know, the, the shy kid that was sort of taking stock of everyone around them. Like that just feels like the foundation for it. Maybe not necessarily for a comedy writer, <laughs> but definitely for a writer at large. There was a story. I worked with this co-writer on the book, Matt Clickstein, who, you know, I use them as a sounding board. Hey, what do you think of this? And there was a story he loved. He wanted to put it up front in the book. And I, I was like, nobody's interested in this. Uh, but for the podcast, I'll tell the story, which was just, uh, I was I was so quiet as a kid, my mom would forget to feed me. So there'd be, there's, there's four noisy kids sitting around the table and me and my mom and my dad. And, you know, they put out all the food. And everybody's eating. And about 20 minutes into the meal, she'd hear me kind of quietly sobbing because she'd forgotten to feed me. And I was just sitting there with an empty plate. <laughs> um, how do you think that that affected your life? <laughs> <laughs> He's hungry to this day. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. You know, I don't buy into all these stories that comedy people are damaged or they have a need to fill or something. I mean, I have, I have just this belief, this is how I was born. And thank God I can do this because I mm -hmm. cannot do one other thing. I can't even, <laughs> I can't type. I don't speak a foreign language. I can't skate. I'm a, I can't parallel park. I can do exactly <laughs> one thing. And, uh, you know, thank God that's a job. That's something yeah. you can do. I'm not sure that being a professional parallel parker is a job either. So don't beat yourself up too much. Uh, br briefly, just I, I also agree with the idea that like just because you had maybe not the smoothest sailing of a childhood doesn't guarantee that you're going to become someone in the entertainment industry or anything like that. There are studies that come out every year that are just like or every couple of years that are I 
I'm pretty sure just clickbait, but saying like, oh, depressed people are always comedians, stuff like that. Sad clown science, you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, that actually ties in great to what I'm going to say, which is when I think about like, how did I become a uh, musical comedian at the start of my uh, quote unquote career? Um, There is a picture of me that I didn't remember until I was shown it uh, by my parents of me getting my first guitar wearing clown makeup because I had a circus themed birthday. And I'm just like, it all checks out. That does seem like it was written, written in stone there. Um, but so we, we know that you were kind of the, the, the quieter of the five. And then we know that you eventually go to Harvard and become friends with Al Jean and write for the Lampoon. Uh, but can you kind of fill in uh, those more formative years leading up to uh, you going to college? And, and if there are any stories that kind of shape uh, your first writing experiences? No, I, I don't find my life all that interesting. And I, I kept it to a minimum in the book. And even what's in there, I see people on Amazon complaining about it. So uh, that was it. I, I, you know, I was a good student. I was number one in the class. I got into Harvard on math, you know, and I know there's the big Simpsons math connection, <laughs> but that's, that's what I was good at. I was good at math and I was on the state math team and all that wow. stuff. And, uh, but that was the thing I liked to do and had fun doing was writing jokes and writing comedy. And, uh, my teachers let me get away with it. So like when we had to write a book report, I would make up a book and then write a report on a made up book. And, you know, they let me do that. So, um, <laughs> That was it. And as I say, I had this funny family. Um, I'm going to jump right ahead to this crazy story because it it takes you through my whole life. Which is, someone asked me, when did you know, and it always comes up in podcasts, when did you know you were funny? And this is, the honest to God answer is, when I was 40 years old. (laughs) I'd already had a whole (laughs) career in comedy and ran The Simpsons. I was president of the Humor Magazine. But I never thought I was that funny because everyone around me was funny. My family was funny. My high school buddies were very funny. And then in college, I'm on the humor magazine with all these future comedy writers. And then, you know, another 20 years in comedy. And it was only when I was 40 where I started kind of, I left the Simpsons. I started hanging out and taking, I took a lot of bus trip, bus tours all over America. I go, oh, gee, (laughs) Regular people suck. <laughs> they are so boring. And up until then, I had no no idea. And it sounds absolutely ludicrous that I didn't know till I was 40. And then I read uh, Eric Idle's memoirs, which is better than any of our books. He wrote a book called Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. A fantastic book. And he says he didn't know he was funny till he was 50. So Monty <laughs> Python was 25 years behind him. And that's when he finally realized it. I re- I figured it's like a fish doesn't know he's in water till he right. gets caught and he's pulled out <laughs> and he goes, oh, wow, I really miss that stuff that was keeping me alive. I think I, that's so interesting and so relatable, I think, for not just for comedy people, but anyone that's in kind of like a creative bubble or just whatever bubble that they find themselves in in their lives. You know, I'm sure like you could find equivalents to scientists and doctors who 
Well, maybe they know they're smart. I was trying to make a connection of like, I didn't know I was smart until I was 50. They probably know. But I think that, you know, there is something to you surround yourself with people that elevate you or are, quote unquote, better than you. And so, you know, you always kind of have that like, you know, step to climb up to be better or to be inspired by. And it isn't until you step outside of that bubble that you kind of get that perspective. Yes. I'm sure it works the other way, too, where, like, country music fans don't know they're stupid till they take a trip to New York. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's exactly the same. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I... I remember uh, feeling like maybe I became someone who who really grew as a person and and became really outgoing and confident. Um, And then I went somewhere out of my comfort zone and realized, like I went to a different city and then I realized like, oh, I... I just am always going to be uncomfortable around strangers, I but I become really confident when I'm with people who are equally anxious and weird as, as I am, uh, and I didn't grow at all. So I relate uh, on, on the flip side of that coin as well, where it's just like, mm-hmm. oh, yes, we have little bubbles that protect us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was going through your credits, and I, I would love to know about uh, your time working on Airplane 2, where you have a special thanks but are not credited as um, like a, a writer. What was your involvement on Airplane 2? And was that the first thing that you worked on professionally? That was my first Hollywood show business job. Al Jean and I were writing for National Lampoon magazine, which used to be a big thing. And we were perfectly happy there. And then two friends of ours, Max Frost and Tom Gamble, who write for The Simpsons now, uh, they were offered this job uh, helping on Airplane 2, and they turned it down and recommended us. And these, by the way, these are the same two guys who were offered the job on the original Simpsons and turned it down and offered it to us. So I owe wow. them everything. It's, it's such, a, <laughs> such an embarrassing biography that uh, my whole career is built on scraps that my friends Max and Tom <laughs> tossed aside. But so um, Airplane 2, it's, uh, I'll back up the story a little, which is Airplane 1, before the movie came out, uh, they did a test screening of it at Harvard. And Al, Gene, and I, we went out to see it, and it was a very rough cut of the movie and significantly different from what you saw in the theaters. But we see this rough cut of the movie, and we go, holy cow, that is the funniest movie I ever saw in my life. And we just, we were just so amazed, and we're telling everyone about Airplane. And then two years later, we're out in Hollywood working on Airplane 2. So it was a little dream come true. Would have been a better dream if the movie was good, but uh, <laughs> it's funny. I've seen it sort of creep up in esteem over the years too. I've seen it go from a two-star movie to now it's up to three. And uh, hey, congrats! Yeah, I think it, it can only mean that all subsequent comedies are suck too. So. Oh yeah, <laughs> that may be the case too. I think time is kind to sequels. I feel like, well, I've always been a defender of Wayne's world too, but I feel like society is slowly coming back to Wayne's world too as well. <laughs> yes. There's, there's sort of built in disappointment. Nobody can judge these things on their own. And I think many years later you just go, Oh, I'm happy. There's another, 90 minutes of these guys I like or these characters I like. So anyway, that was it. We, uh, and I'll tell this story too, which is 
Uh, Al and I were working at National Lampoon. We loved the job and it was fun. And then our boss, Jerry Sussman, assigned us an article. He said, I want you to write a parody of Indiana Jones, but he's not an archaeologist. He's a gynecologist. And instead of a whip, he's got a speculum, which we didn't even know what that was. And Al and I hated the idea. We just hated it. And we sat down over a weekend. We're trying to write this terrible, like, smutty, not funny idea. And <laughs> we fought. I mean, I remember this day so clearly because we fought more on that weekend than we did over the next 20 years of writing together. It was just because we couldn't make it work. It was so frustrating. And in the middle of this all, we get the call. Hey, do you want to come out to work on Airplane 2? We need you tomorrow. <laughs> we said, yeah. And I don't think it was because we wanted to work on Airplane 2. It was because we didn't want to write this piece. And so <laughs> we went into work the next morning. It was a real dick move, by the way. I would hate anyone who did this to me. We walk into work the next morning. We quit our jobs. Uh, we ran out on our lease. We we packed two suitcases and moved from New York to L.A. And... Uh, and that, and um, the next morning, we're on the set of Airplane Two, and we're writing jokes. And they, they put us in a, a box on the set. It was a wooden shed on a hot soundstage, and Al and I had a typewriter, and we would just bang out extra jokes. In fact, I remember the first day at work. Here's my first job in in show business, and it's a beauty. If you remember the first airplane, of course. Peter Graves has this running joke uh, talking to this little boy where he's sort of coming on. He's making sort of an erratic. <laughs> you ever seen on. a grown man naked? Exactly. <laughs> those kind of lines. Well, this is, it's very typical of Airplane 2 that they said, well, let's do everything exactly the same, but a little different. <laughs> so this time the little boy comes in with a dog and Peter Graves is hitting on the dog. So they send send us back to our hot box. It's like nine in the morning. They said, we need 20 lines for Peter Graves saying he wants to fuck a dog. (laughs) It was welcome to Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah. Your degree at work. (laughs) Yeah. So that was the job. It went, I don't know, about 13 weeks. It was very, very exciting. It was, we worked day and night. We worked so hard that the, Writer director was a very very funny guy named Ken Finkelman. He finally he didn't even want us wasting time like going to our apartment. So he moved us into our his house and he wow. was just this, this complete slave driver where he'd work us till two in the morning. We need more jokes. To, and at two in the morning, it, you know, we were up till two, knowing we had to get up at eight to go back to the set the next morning. And he said, "All right, get some sleep, but see what you can come up with before you wake up tomorrow." <laughs> oh my gosh yeah dream b- the punch up <laughs> yeah so that was it we worked on the movie we wrote i would say if you see the movie al and i wrote about a third of that film and wow by by rules of the writers guild uh, that was not enough material to get any credit at all on the film and the, the way that the writers guild generally works you either get you get full credit or nothing, and there's not supposed to be any mention of you 
anywhere in the credits. Like uh, there was something. I know. Yeah. It's so insane. They have uh, people will be listed as an assistant uh, right. to the writer when they actually wrote some of the best lines in the movie. It's really bizarre. Yes. And that was on the first airplane, though. It was a loophole. We saw on the first airplane, there was a special thanks to credit to a very funny writer named Pat Proft. And he was the Mike and Al of Airplane One. He was on the set writing extra jokes. And so uh, we said, Ken, can you give us that credit? And I, I think it was a little grudging, but he gave us the special thanks to credit on the movie. Also, if you watch the movie again in the first five minutes, you hear my name or you hear uh, one of the uh, air traffic controllers saying, uh, we've got a collect call for Mike Reese from his mother. So uh, there yeah. you go. There, there's my proof. There I, it is. I How thrilling. And so <laughs> this was great. your first official Hollywood job with Al and you guys are officially writing partners. And we talked to him yeah. a little bit about, you know, um, his background and, you know, becoming a writer and, and all that. You know, we are curious about your perspective of like, what is it like to be in a writing partnership like that? And, you know, what are some things that people may not know about it? Or, you know, what has worked for you guys to kind of, you know, keep inspiration flowing and productivity and going and all that stuff? And what don't you like about Al Jean? Yeah, because he's not here. <laughs> I'm afraid it's only a one-hour podcast. Um, <laughs> no, I just, I dearly love the guy, and I love him more. As time goes on, as I'm getting older, I go, wow, thanks, Al. What a, you know, thanks for this great life he gave me. Um, Al and I, we were friends first. I met him the first week of college, and we became friends. And then for the next three years, we were roommates. And it purely happenstance. It was one night, I'll remember, again, I remember this so clearly. We had bunk beds in college, and we still have bunk beds. And uh, But Al and I, <laughs> we were in bunk beds, and we're laying there at like 2 in the morning. And I don't know, we started talking about magic books we had as a kid. We, had, we both had read this book called Spooky Magic. And we start making fun of spooky magic and the tricks in the book. And it just sort of turned into an article. And we said, oh, we should write that for the Harvard Lampoon. And so we wrote that piece together. It was our first collaboration. And it was so easy and it was so much fun. And that was it. And then from then on, we just kept writing together. And again, you know, we we rarely, rarely fought over anything. uh, and I think it's because we're we're very similar. We are very similar minds. Anyone who thinks like writing teams uh, should complement each other or be very different people—that's insane. That's <laughs> absolutely terrible. Al and I think <laughs> agree on ninety percent of things, and almost always, if one of us pitches a line, the other one was about to say it. So. <laughs> we think exactly alike, and it just helps to have two people there. It keeps the momentum going. It keeps the writing much more polished in that, you know, every every draft I think a writing team puts out is one draft ahead of everyone else. A first draft by a team reads like someone else's second draft because everything's mm. been kind of gone over and second-guessed. Uh, so it was very easy, and it was – it was never like one guy's good on structure, one's on jokes or anything like that. I mean, we wrote a line at a time, a word at a time, and that was how we did it. And uh, that was it. We would have 
I would say one fight a year and it was always, <laughs> it was never over material or anything. It was over uh, some note someone gave us. Someone said, you've got to do this. And we interpreted the note differently. And mm. I would say 90% of the time Al was right and I was wrong. <laughs> Speaking of notes, just for, for people that are maybe kind of newer to to writing, I think a, an instinct that a lot of people have is that every note uh, should be taken at uh, and, it, and everyone's note is good. <laughs> and I think that uh, maybe you can attest to the fact that that might not always be the case. Are there any notes that you remember getting um, throughout your career that really were helpful? People don't even, you know, they probably need a little background. When you work on most TV shows, most sitcoms, uh, you know, you're trying to make the show, and then there's probably three or four people from the network who come in, observe you, and give you a bunch of notes. Here's how to do your job. Here's what this story should be. Here's what's not good. Here's what you should change. Uh, so there's three or four of them, and there's three or four of them from the studio that produces it, and they come in with their notes, and th here's two teams that people telling you how to do your job and they don't agree on anything. Everybody wants their notes done. And uh, especially on a disastrous show, which we, we will probably get to sooner or later, <laughs> um, uh, you find yourself not making a show at all. All you're doing is addressing everybody's notes. And there's one thing I was talking to a writing class. I was saying, and this is how these studios work. And you have to listen to everybody's notes. And they said, some, some, a student asked me, well, who are they? What's their background? And it was this shocking moment where I realized, wow, they're, they're just nobody. You walk <laughs> in and suddenly you know how to tell esteemed writers how to do their job. They have no background. They generally haven't studied TV or movies. They don't have experience in it. I think a lot of them are MBAs and, uh, they are disastrous. There is absolutely <laughs> no good that comes of these people. Now, and mind you, if they did their jobs well, it would be fantastic, you know, because you need someone from the outside to come in and say, I don't understand this story. I don't know what you're saying here. Or I don't get this joke. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, this story, This I, I get the feeling this makes Homer look bad, something like that. But they're never good notes. There are <laughs> never, ever good notes. There's two occasions where I, I can only remember two out of literally probably 100 executives I worked with that I respected. Uh, one was a woman named, I'll give everyone's name, it was a woman named Kelly Kolchak who worked on The Critic. She gave notes on The Critic. And we all liked her so much, including James L. Brooks. He hired her. He brought her away from, I think, ABC and made her his head of development. So wow. when they're good, they're good. The other one was a woman named Lori Forte who uh, worked on ALF. She worked for NBC. Her notes were always reasonable. She was deferential to the writers. And years later, she wound up creating and producing the Ice Age movies, you know, this multi-billion dollar franchise. And I was very happy she remembered me from 20 years <laughs> before and hired me to work on these Ice Age movies. And she she's a real pleasure to deal with. She's If you read my book, she's the only executive I say anything nice about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, can, can we talk a little bit more about uh, those Ice Age movies? Yes, we can. This is something I didn't know till I was reading about myself on Wikipedia. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm reading my Wikipedia page because, uh, you know, this Lori Forte had called me out of the blue to work on Ice Age. And I just thought, oh, she remembers me and I'm awesome and that kind of thing. And then I read on Wikipedia that David Silverman, the head animator for The Simpsons, was also mm-hmm. working on the movie and he recommended me. And so what they do, it's basically with animated films, somebody writes the script, probably they do a second draft of the script, but it takes four years to make these movies and they find a lot of problems along the way when they're making these movies and they change and that kind of thing. So they always need extra writers on animated films and they're just bringing them in. And some people like this Lori Forte does it judiciously. Like the Ice Age movies, there were maybe there's three, four, maybe five writers and we all knew about each other. We all knew we were working on the script and revising each other's material and that kind of thing. We all get along. We're all still friends. So that's a good way to do it. Sometimes it's out of control. Uh, and I'll mention the movie Rio. Remember this movie with <laughs> yeah. a Jewish parrot and uh, <laughs> not Aladdin with that Jewish parrot. This sure. is a different Jewish parrot. <laughs> Jews, by the way, always get cast as parrots. And I think it's <laughs> Why do you an think that is? It's a beak thing. It's a beak oh, thing. Oh, no. <laughs> but so um, uh, I'm working on the movie Rio, and I'm, the script is no good. And I keep, I'm, I'm sorry to the writers. It's just, I, mean, I didn't like the script, and I'm writing them tons of jokes and fixing it, and nothing's going in the movie. Nothing's fixing it. And there's, a line that became my mantra in Hollywood, which was, you don't have to use my jokes, but you got to use someone's. And that, yeah. and that was it. The script was just never, ever getting better. So I kept quitting. I go, I quit Rio. They said, please, we need you. There was, the director was Brazilian. Please, Michael, we need you. <laughs> I don't know why he sounds like he's Hungarian, but he said, please, I want to drink your blood. So, I kept quitting Rio and they kept saying to me, we need you back. We need you back. Please don't go. So I stayed with the movie for years and it was so frustrating. And so when we finished the movie again, I said, gee, I did all this work on the movie. Uh, Do you think maybe I could get some writing credit? And they told me, oh, we can't do that because we had 19 other writers working on the script at the same time. (laughs) And, wow. and you guys were never in the same, it wasn't like a writer's room situation. It was with not like TV a writer's shows. room. Yeah. And that was it. I even, I had no realization there was anyone else working on the script but me. But that's it. They just throw writers at these things. And some people, uh, again, like the Ice Age movies, they don't always make them better. You would always see the movie getting better and better. And some people, though, uh, generally the process, they hate taking a new joke anytime a joke is not working in an animated movie because they get tested and shown before audiences over and over again when a joke's not working the director will always go i can make it work i can make it work and you know (laughs) they do all these cheap tricks to make a joke work they'll have they'll hold the scene too long or they'll have a water cooler make a dripping noise and it's like (laughs) Just write a better fucking joke. Don't <laughs> say the bad joke. So uh, 
I forgot where I was going. <laughs> well, I, I was curious about, given that these are kids' animated films and, you know, The Simpsons is an adult animated show and a lot of the other um, TV work that you've done has been sort of either adult-oriented or, like, you know, a bridge demographic of both kids and adults. Do you find that there's a difference in the writing style and in, in writing for kid like, jokes for kids versus adults in this way? Or is writing writing to you? Uh, I always... I just write the way I write. I mean, obviously... You know, there's there's a lot less cursing in the Ice Age movies, <laughs> but I'm always there writing for the parents who have to sit through these movies with their kids, <laughs> and you know, those are the biggest successes, is the ones the the ones that have some some adult appeal as well. I'm going to tell this story, and I'm going to mention the name of the movie, which may make the guy really mad who produced it, but. <laughs> I worked on the movie The Lorax, and I wrote a lot for The Lorax. And uh, and if you remember the movie, it's very complicated because it's got two stories going simultaneously, one in the present and one like 30 years in the past. So the producer of the film brings me in to see it uh, about two or three weeks before it comes out. And, you know, there's a ton of my jokes in there. And I go, I'm so happy, not that they're my jokes, but that there's, adult skewing jokes in this otherwise Dr. Susie movie. And I go, I'm telling the producer, you really nailed it. This is great. I like all this sharp, all this edgy stuff that got in there. You got something really great. And three weeks later, the movie comes out. They've cut every edgy thing out of it. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. Oh, they, no. they just go, oh, wow. He is basically, I was a negative barometer. So they just cut all the fun stuff out of there. They get very, very scared on these animated movies. That's the other thing. I think they get very chicken. I, in, I think it's Despicable Me, uh, there was a scene where they cut away to uh, an Asian villain. It's one of the Despicable Me vin- Minions movies. And I just said, oh, why don't we put a super North Korea and then underneath <laughs> that, the scary Korea. And they, they loved it. They're, and it's not that great a joke, but they're calling me. We love that joke so much. Oh, my God. We stopped and had a little round of applause at, at the meeting today for that joke. So, of course, the movie comes out. The joke is not in there. And the producer said, if we had put that joke in, we would have lost $100 million in Korea alone. And and it's like, A, no. But B, <laughs> no movie has ever made a hundred million dollars in Korea. Parasite didn't make a hundred million. They're telling me my one joke, or leave it out of the Korean subtitle. I don't know. They're just chickens, and so you you like the the very handful of uh, kind of bold, you know, people who trust their judgment. I mean, I can say this: I've worked on twenty four animated movies, and of those. I'm happy with three of them. <laughs> That's it. it. And we'd always get it. It's it's a bad feeling. And not the movies aren't all bad, but they're always worse than they were at some point. There was always a much better cut of the movie a month before they had it and then they got rid of it. So it's it's pretty frustrating work and I'm I'm pretty vocal about it, which is why nobody's <laughs> asked me to do it in the past three years. um so after the simpsons obviously um you and al 
uh, co-created The Critic. We, we actually had an entire episode uh, of our podcast, the old version of it, with Al, where we got into The Critic, and it was super fun, and you came up a bunch, of course. Uh, I wanted to kind of hear how it was to go from uh, being someone working on The Simpsons in this uh, very shared environment and space uh, to then running uh, the show with Al. Well, we'd already been running The Simpsons for a couple of years, so we knew how to run a show. And, you know, you probably heard the story of how this whole show came about, and it was going to be a live-action show with John Lovett. It was actually, it started off, it was supposed to be about the makeup woman on the Today Show. That was (laughs) James L. L. Brooks came to us with this idea. We want you, I want you to do a show about the makeup woman on the Today Show. And, You know, we go, yeah, right, boss. And he leaves the room and Al and I go, Jesus Christ. You know, it may be a great idea, but not for us. And we're just kicking the idea around. We said, well, we could have a funny weatherman and we could have a uh, film critic. Hey, that's fun. We we like the idea of having a Gene Shallot like film critic on the show. And then we said, let's do it for John Lovitz. And I know, I know I'm sure Al told this whole story. We wrote the script for John Lovitz without ever telling him. And then we go to him and go, here's your script, Lovitz. You're going to do a TV show. And Lovitz, of course, goes, he had just done a league in their own. He goes, I'm a movie star. I don't need a TV. <laughs> and, uh, and the show was about to fall apart uh, when I I think Al said, you know, Mike had this idea. We do it animated. He said, then, and then you don't have to come in as often. And Lovitz, who's <laughs> more than anything else, is a very lazy man goes i love it and so that was it it was a last ditch effort it was what made the critic uh an animated show it's insane that none of us had thought of it up to that point so it became animated and it was just fun i gotta say that is one i one of the most fun jobs i ever had we wound up hiring a bunch of our old friends to work on the show i mean they were all legitimate writers but the workload, you know, we were only doing 13 episodes the first year and only did 10 the second year and there was no third year. So it was so much <laughs> easier uh, than running, you know, The Simpsons when we were actually doing 24 a year. So That's nuts. I just had fun. We just made ourselves laugh and the problem was we didn't make America laugh. <laughs> <laughs> You made us laugh. Julia and I are both very big fans of The Critic and it's um I know that it's it's never uh as fun to to be the creator of a uh, kind of a cult classic as it is to be someone who's part of the cult who loves it. Uh <laughs> but um it's always so fun cuz everybody smart likes The Simpsons. Um but you have to sometimes go a little bit further out of your way to find shows that aren't, you know, constantly on TV and reruns and so if you found someone who loved the critic, it's just like, oh, well, then you and I will be friends yeah. because, uh, you know, you and I both like this thing and we could bond over it like you and that magic book. <laughs> I also say that that, yeah, you guys having fun. I mean, it's so apparent on the screen, like there is such a joy to the critic, which I think is what I really, really responded to of just like, you know, the like the world of the critics and and that they all know each other and that they kind of like rumble against each other in a way I thought was really, really funny. And of course, all the pop culture stuff, there was just such like a, a bounciness to it that I think um, still affects audiences today. That's it. It's, you know, I'm sure Al said it too. It, 
if it had somehow come out today, I think the show would be it'd be a big Netflix hit. It would be a big oh, yeah. you know, oh Jack Horseman kind of thing. And so of course we hear it all the time, oh you gotta reboot it. And I'm I you know, Lovitz, who didn't want to do it in the first place, now <laughs> now he's he's dying to do it and now he would do oh. a live action. He's like, I can get it made. Just <laughs> give me the and it's like, <laughs> You know, Al's busy running The Simpsons. James L. Brooks is busy running The Simpsons. I don't want to do The Critic again. (laughs) And for many reasons, including the fact it would just kill me if it failed yet again. I mean, of course. It failed on ABC, then it failed on Fox. We had an offer from UPN, which is not even a network now. (laughs) UPN said, uh, we'll. We'd love to do a third season of The Critic uh, if you get rid of The Critic. They want it to be a kiddie show and all about Marty. (laughs) Oh, my God. And that's where I said no. Of course. The other thing, to anyone there who wants to see The Critic rebooted, there's no TV critics anymore. The thing (laughs) it was about does not exist. And everybody you loved on The Critic is dead. The <laughs> the, it's unbelievable you know our simpsons six simpsons cast members just go on and on half the critic cast is dead and it's a and it's, oh, no. it's only the people the most popular characters on the show so <laughs> uh, well let's uh let's wish all of the dead well during our break interrupt the podcast you're listening to to tell you about another podcast that's right we got this with mark and hal that's correct mark this is Hal. we do the hard work for you settling all of the meaningless arguments you have with your friends so tune in every week on the maximum fun network for we got this with mark and hal and all your questions will be asked and answered you're welcome all right that's enough of that we got this Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my friend's favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. I'm Judge John Hodgman. You're hearing the voices of real litigants, real people who have submitted disputes to my internet court at the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I hear their cases. I ask them questions. They're good ones. And then I tell them who's right and who's wrong. Thanks to Judge John Hodgman's ruling... My dad has been forced to retire one of the worst dad jokes of all time. Instead of cutting his own hair with a floby, my husband has his hair cut professionally. I have to join a community theater group. And my wife has stopped bringing home wild animals. It's the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Find it every Wednesday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks, Judge John Hodgman. And we're back. What a good break. So we talked a little bit about the critic, uh, but now I'm really interested in hearing about Queer Duck and uh, would love to know everything that you would like to share about it from the origin to uh, writing lyrics for it, to directing, to anything you want to give us. Okay. All right. Um, (laughs) In the year 2000, it was uh, during the first big dot-com boom, some guys who worked on The Simpsons or are about to work on The Simpsons uh, started a company called Icebox.com. And their idea was to do 
original three-minute cartoons every day. Every day you'd get a new cartoon on the internet. And uh, they did it. They made it work. And they went out. This is this is interesting. They went out to all the writers they knew that they liked. And they said, do you want to do this show? Do a, Do your own show for the internet. It's going to be a lot of work. You will not get paid. Uh, <laughs> the only thing we can tell you is you won't get notes. You will not get, no executives will be here telling you how to do your job. And that was such a, a, a great offer that every writer they asked did a show for them. So Al Jean did a wow. show for them. Larry David did something for icebox.com. That, it showed you real writers, they don't care about the money. They care about the product and yes, they like definitely. to do what they're, they like to make comedy and, you know, love the opportunity to uh, not have someone get in the way of your comedy. So that was it. I jumped at the chance too, and I did a series for them called Hard Drinking Lincoln. And that went well. <laughs> and then one day I read in the paper this amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to think this is just 20 years ago. There was an article that said there are no gay characters on TV. There was not one gay person on TV. And then there, it was it even had the mention of the fact that sex in the city was very popular with gay men. Now, we all know that now. No one knew it at the time. So I was just shocked. I was shocked and horrified that there were no gay people on TV. And then this is a quick sidebar. In the year 2000, the the state of Colorado passed a law. You think of Colorado as kind of a liberal place. They passed a law saying gay people cannot teach school. I mean, it's, oh just, my God. Yeah, God. it's just mind-boggling. This is the year 2000, you know, so this oh. millennium. So I said, well, this is wrong, and I hate living in this society. So I'm going to create a cartoon for gay people because nobody I'm going to do – I mean – I wanted to do something for a gay audience. And uh, since I make cartoons, I said, I'm going to come up with a gay Bugs Bunny. And I'm not gay. You have a lovely, lovely wife, Denise. I have a beautiful (laughs) wife, Denise. I'm not gay, partly because I've never been asked. But that was it. I just started writing this thing. And it was so easy. and It was so fun. And unlike writing The Simpsons, where everything's been done already, you know, there'd never been a gay cartoon, so everything was wide open. I actually went to the, uh, I'll tell this whole story. I went to the producers at Icebox. Uh, one of them was Rob Lazavnik, who works on The Simpsons. And I said to him, I said to him, look, I want to do this gay cartoon about a gay duck and his gay animal friends. Do you want a gay writer? I know a lot of gay writers, if you'd prefer. And they said, no, you can write it. Uh, but make sure you have a gay lead, a gay person playing queer duck. And then the second actor who came in was uh, Jim J. Bullet, who loved the piece. He loved doing it. He was so funny. And so I do queer duck. Uh, you can see all 20 episodes of it on uh, YouTube. They're all up there. It is the thing I am proudest of. I am prouder of it than The Simpsons, than, than The Critic. Uh, and the the theme song. Oh, sorry, I was just gonna say uh, the theme song uh, is performed by RuPaul, which is so cool, and it has a, a great cast. It has a great cast. Yeah, people who wound up again where Kevin Michael Richardson, uh, who's Billy West, Maurice Lamarche, Billy West, yeah. uh, Nick Jameson, who 
was the uh, big uh, voice actor on The Critic and on Mission Hell. He was probably half the characters on that show. Again, Mm -hmm. nothing but fun working on that show. And then it came on. We go, what have we got here? You know, is it hateful? And it came on and in 2000 terms, it, it did break the internet. They put up the first Queer Duck cartoon and the whole, and traffic to the site quintupled in the first hour. Wow. It crashed the internet. The whole site crashed the first day. And two days after that, uh, a reporter flew in from Germany to interview me about Queer Duck. It was just, it became, it was just an international sensation from the start. Gay people loved it, which was great. I won I have this shelf full of gay awards in my home. <laughs> and uh, the one funny thing I should, I should say is for the first year when it was so big and popular, I know it sounds crazy because 90% of your audience has never heard of it. And I'm telling you, it was big <laughs> when your parents were young. For the first year of it, I didn't say I was gay, but I never said I was straight either. I just didn't want people to judge the show and uh i would i would be very cagey and talk about my partner and one day a reporter came to the house and i hid all my wedding pictures and i <laughs> i locked my wife in the bedroom i probably didn't have to lock her in but just to be safe so that was it i was in the closet as a straight man for about a year and, and uh, the new york times they outed me as a straight man and it didn't hurt the cartoon one bit. Everybody well, still good. liked it. Yes. Yeah. Because, yeah, you know, times have uh, shifted so much. And, you know, now it's really important and everyone is really making efforts to have uh, people tell their own stories. But for, for the longest time, the only chance many stories had of getting told were having, you know, people that weren't them telling them. Uh, you know, and that kind of opened a lot of doors, which is great. So I think, you know, sometimes it takes a, a straight guy to, to open those doors. And sometimes, you know, those things like, you know, look at the show, uh, transparent who it started out as great. And then we kind of realized like, oh, okay, maybe that's not so great. And, um, you know, things, things change so much. Uh, it's, it's actually pretty fascinating. Julia, I know that you'll probably want to talk about teen angel. Do you mind, uh, teeing us up to that? Yeah, of course. Um, so we're probably going to be bouncing around all over your IMDb um, through this because um, you've covered so many different corners of both TV and movies and award shows, which I want to talk about too. But a personal favorite of mine was Teen Angel. I, I think I truly shocked Al Jean in telling him it was <laughs> such a great show that I appreciated. <laughs> and I keep uh, uh, harassing him to have us do a full epi- uh, episode about it. But I, I want to hear your perspective on uh, working on that that show and like what that environment was in comparison to the other work that you had done up until that point here's this new tgif show and you know was that an any different kind of process in writing and creating it versus the simpsons or you know other things that you had done up until that point uh, yes it was 100 percent different <laughs> Great. And, uh, <laughs> uh yes it was completely different al and i had a development deal. This is where it was something that almost doesn't exist anymore. It was very common in the late 80s or the 90s, I guess, where you would sign a deal with the studio and they pay a lot of money to create shows for them. And uh, we had signed with the studio and 
we go in and we the first thing we did, we pitched them a bunch of ideas for animated shows and they go, no, we don't want you doing animation. And it's like, why did you hire us? You know, <laughs> do you know what we've done before? So we couldn't do animation. And Al and I were, were very diligent and we'd come up with like three new ideas for a show a week. And every week we'd go in and tell them our ideas and they just reject them, reject them, reject them. Uh, for about two and a half years of a three-year deal. And finally, we said, well, let's try to be hacks. That's That was it. Because <laughs> uh, nothing else was working. And so we went in and uh, we said, what are the two biggest hits on TV right now? And the two biggest hits were uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch and Beavis and Butthead. And so we go, oh, mm. let's do a show. It's a combination of Beavis and Butthead and Sabrina Teenage Witch. And this is what they love, these these stupid executives I've been railing against. <laughs> they like you to come in, not with an original idea, but a combination of two things. Or here's Seinfeld <laughs> with a twist. He's got kids, you know. The elevator pitch of it's like this meets that. It's this meets that. So what, this literally happened. We went in, pitched Teen Angel. We said, it's Sabrina meets... Beavis and Butthead, and the executive, I said, it's Sabrina, it's a cross between Sabrina and Beavis and Butthead, and they said, we love it, except for the Beavis and Butthead, and I said, so you want it to be a cross between Sabrina, (laughs) and that was it, they said, yeah, so if you watch Teen Angel, and again, those are up on the internet too, you can see, it's just it's two dopey guys and one of them has magic powers and they're in high school having antics and that kind of thing. And it, again, we were just overrun with network executives and studio executives telling us how to do the show. And it was unbelievable how much of my time was just spent on wardrobe and hairstyles. It's like, let me write the show, but no, this was much more important. And we did the best show we could, but I, I always had the sense that TGIF was sort of like a massive planet and it had this huge gravity. And no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't escape the gravity of TGIF. And that was it. it was, <laughs> we, we had excellent writers on the show, fantastic writers who all went off to do terrific things. But the show was just so mediocre. It was just so <laughs> mediocre and interfered with all the way through. Well, Julia, what did what did you like about the show? Well, I think <laughs> I mean for me, uh, we we haven't mentioned what the premise is that it's yeah the two dopey guys, but one of them eats like a spoiled sandwich underneath his bed, and I believe he dies and then becomes an angel. <laughs> oh, and and is the teen angel. And, you know, I think that for me, even, you know, like when I was younger and watching it, it just was so apparent that it was a different type of show than Full House and, you know, Step by Step and those other kind of TGIF shows that, you know, like the premises were different and a little bit more subversive and you know the jokes were always strong and of course I had no idea the Simpsons connection to it of course was already a big fan of the Simpsons but I just recognized it as being different than the other lineup so take that in whatever way you wanna (laughs) accept Uh, my praise (laughs) I have to mention the one thing the network actually got behind the show and this is typical of how a network 
moves. They go, we like your show so much. We're going to move it from whatever, 8.30 to 9 o'clock. And then we said, don't put us on at 9 o'clock. I, I, I forget what we were on against, but that didn't work. All right, now we're moving it back to 8 o'clock. And then they moved it to 8.30. And they, they kept saying, we're trying to protect your show. So they kept moving it around. It was like it was in a safe house. It was in it was in sitcom production program. They kept moving the show where even my mom called and said, I'm giving up trying to find your show. I don't know where it is. And that was it. It was like, stop helping us. So whatever it was, um, about 13 weeks into the show, they came in and gave us just a massive overhaul of the show. And uh so it went from something not working to something that would never work. And we did, I think, four more. Uh, there's some good jokes in there. The the star, the teen angel himself, was a guy named Mike Damis, who to to this day is the most talented guy I ever worked with. He was I felt wow. bad. He was like 19. He was in college. And all he did was work. He just sweated every line in that script tried to come up with business. You see him working very hard in every scene. He was a pleasure. Uh, again, it was a fun show to do. It just was a piece of crap. <laughs> so how much of your uh, career, if you could break it down into percentages and maybe it doesn't even work this way, how much of it do you feel like you were kind of mostly just doing a job and finding joy in it and how much of it was like super passion driven and and wow what a joy they don't even need to pay me uh i don't know i've been very very lucky i never had to work on uh they don't even have these shows anymore but uh you know a full house or a growing sure sure i never had to work on a show that was just three people sitting on a couch I never had to work on a show that ended with everybody hugging and that kind of thing. So <laughs> when you get a job in TV, you're always excited. It's always exciting. And you always think it's going to be the hugest hit in the world. And you need that. You need that sense of delusion to keep you yes. working. I mean, often you're working 80, 90 hours a week. You really got to convince yourself this is going to be great. I remember – very just to bring this full circle we were working on airplane two and we were out to dinner with a bunch of friends and i said to me i said to someone i think airplane two is going to be better than airplane one and al, <laughs> al just said to me i don't think you should be telling people that <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I was going through uh, your writing credits, which many of which we've uh, gotten to discuss, uh, but I saw that you have an acting credit. You are oil can guzzler in The Naked Monster. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Can you talk to us about that? Tell us about your process for that. That, I saw that on IMDb and I said, well, there's a mistake. And... And I mentioned it to a friend. He said, no, you did that. And it was something I just, to date, I have no memory of doing it. I think it was a a friend of ours. What is it called? Naked Monster or something? It's called the Naked Monster. Naked Monster. I I think I know who made that. And clearly it wasn't a (laughs) top-notch production because he had me acting in it. And uh, I guess I did it. You know, it was four hours out of my life, you know, 40 years ago. But yes, that's the thing I'm proudest of. Forget queer duck. Of course. (laughs) Naked monster. That's great. Yeah. 
So uh, we talked a little bit last time, um, and you go into it in great detail in your book about the college talks that you give and talking about your career and sort of the state of comedy. And so, um, you know, you can answer this as broadly or as specifically as you want. Um, but <laughs> I'm just curious. <laughs> I, I like it. You said, I'm sure you meant you said as broadly, but I thought you said you can answer this as Bradley. It's like, all right, I will. I'm Bradley Cooper. If you want, yeah. if you want to be Bradley oil can guzzler, we yes. won't fault you. I am so many. I am multitudes. I am. I am. Are <laughs> yes. today's Robin Williams? Yes. <laughs> um, just curious, like in your opinion how has comedy writing changed over your career? Like we, we just mentioned the like case of there not being TV shows where three people are sitting on a couch, you know, and that, you know, there are, there's been changes not only for TV sitcoms, but of course, you know, we can get into streaming, but like, how do you think that like comedy writing, like what is focused and what is important in comedy writing has changed? And um, just curious on your perspective on that. I I mean, maybe I'm giving us too, too much credit, but I think, Simpsons really changed comedy. They changed comedy in that we just, when the Simpsons came on the air, the the number one show on the air was Cosby. Cosby was famous for the fact that it moved slow and nothing ever happened on the show. And And then the Simpsons comes along and we had no artistic vision for the show other than we said, Let's make it move as fast as we can. I mean, that was it. Let's, how much can we pack and do an episode? And there was nothing else on TV like that. And now, and I remember older people hated the show when it came on. They go, it moves too fast. They talk too fast. They can't <laughs> follow it. And now everything moves like that. And I think it's it's a generation of people who grew up on The Simpsons where Every show I watch on TV, I'm with them. It moves too fast. I can't keep up with it all. But, you know, something like Brooklyn 911, I I can't watch it. Slow, slow down, everyone, and stop, <laughs> stop milking a joke six ways. You know, let's move on right. to another joke. And so, yeah, everybody's doing this. It's The funny thing is we're in quarantine right now. And so I'm doing for the past week what I've never done, which is, I'm watching TV. I don't watch TV. And when I watch it, I just watch documentaries. And But I said, gee, I'm hunkered down for weeks here. Let me get Netflix. There's a free 30-day trial. I'll watch <laughs> everything on Netflix. Wow. I hope I, and I got to see everything in the next 30 days. And I'm watching it. I go, wow, TV is amazing. It's so I mean, the production values are so oh, yeah. great. And, it's like movies. Yeah, yeah. everything. I, I look at, I mean, the show I cannot believe exists is uh, Documentary Now. Oh, my so gosh. Oh Same good. here. It is so fantastic. <laughs> it and is amazing. I thought the critic was obscure. I mean, these. Yeah. These, <laughs> they are parodying <laughs> the most obscure things, and the production values are astounding in every episode. And I think there's only, you know, 35 people watching this show that's where i'm 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 glad i got my simpsons job because i go i couldn't make a tv show now i don't have that work ethic to you know (laughs) i don't don't necessarily believe oh a tv show's got to look like a movie or I'm so glad to hear you say documentary now because that is a show that I constantly point to and in like basically what you just said, but 
Um, like, I don't know who this is for because it is only for me. Oh, yeah. The references they're making. I mean, the Grey Gardens episode, I think, was if not the first episode, <laughs> but it was like the third. And it to me, I was like, who is this for if not for Julia Prescott in a film studies class in like 2000, <laughs> whatever? Like, what? And then their uh, most recent season where they, um, you know, did that whole co-op episode that was kind of making fun of Sondheim's company. Again, it's like, who is this for? <laughs> But they're doing it so well for the audience that they're intending. And I think that that barometer for success is, you know, you never fail with that. We were watching one last night. My wife goes, what is this a parody of? And I go, it's it's the Chet Baker documentary, Let's Get Lost. (laughs) And we even saw it. And it's like, even having seen the documentary, we weren't getting it exactly. (laughs) I love that, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, it has been so much fun talking to you today. Before we go, um, curious, you could kind of just give us one of the more important lessons you've learned through your long and successful career um, that you could give a, a new writer uh, or just a person. Just the, you got to work very hard. There's a, there's a lot of people, and I was one of them. I think this is this would have been me if I hadn't met Al Jean, who's very focused and very driven. Uh, you know, I rolled into a thing and well, I'm funny and I make people laugh, so I'll do this comedy and hey, this is funny and I would just crank stuff out and hey, that's good enough. And I saw Al would sweat the work he was doing and go over things we'd written separately in college and he'd work it over and over and think about it and I go, oh, gee, that's the way you make things good. So yeah, if you want to be in comedy, you got to be funny. And I think you can't fake that and you can't learn it. Um, I'll just, I'll, I'll do a plug for yet another book. I've only read five books in my life and I'm very proud of it. <laughs> I probably mentioned it on the last podcast. It's a book called Poking a Dead Frog. I it, love that book. It's it so is, good. It is a, again, if you've made it this far on the podcast, if you want to write comedy, buy that book. It's interviews with comedy writers interspersed with pragmatic step-by-step lessons on how to get a job at late night or the daily show or any of Conan or SNL hard advice you cannot find anywhere else. Mm, but the last great. interview in the book and clearly saves the best for last uh, <laughs> is this interview with Mel Brooks. And after Mel Brooks, you know, hypothesizing and pontificating on comedy he says, you know, you either got it or you don't got it. And I go, yeah. you know, it's hard for us to say that, but you either got it or you don't got it. But even if you got it, you got to work really hard to make it really good and sweat the jokes. And it's as easy as just stepping back from something you wrote and go, would I laugh at this? And that can be brutal sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard too. Um, you know, cause there is at least for me, like I want to get an A, you know, and comedy is such a collaborative experience. So I want my peers to laugh and I want that approval, but it is a different mentality to shift from like, I want to just write the joke that's going to elicit that response versus is this actually the joke I want to write? And I think that those are two lanes that are very close to each other, but they're very different. So it can be easy to kind of flip back and forth between them, at least for me. Right. You know, anyone who's heard your podcast knows at The Simpsons, we rewrite the scripts endlessly. Eight 
complete rewrites from top to bottom. And no matter how good your script was, and one of you wrote a script, right? Yeah, I did. Julia did. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure you were shocked what came out the other end of the pipe because it gets rewritten so heavily. And our writers go into this knowing whatever they write, 80% of it's going to change. And that doesn't matter. They still come in with the very best script they can do. Nobody phones it in. Nobody does a half-baked effort knowing they're only going to keep the bones of this. Everyone works really hard and wants to be proud and accountable for what they put on the page. I love that. And it obviously shows because it's truly the best show in the world. Um, After Queer Duck, of course. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, This has been... One more thing. Follow me on Twitter. If you're never going to buy any of these books, and I know you're too lazy to even go on YouTube and watch the three-minute Queer Duck cartoons, I write a joke a day on Twitter. Mike Reese, writer is my handle and it's the kind of thing i i only want to write one good joke a day and i'll spend hours on it i mean it's i mean (laughs) to the disadvantage of everything else in my life i work really hard on my joke a day on twitter and if nobody's liking that joke i go they better come up with another one today so (laughs) as a mike reese writer on twitter thank you Great. And then, Julia, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Julia Prescott on all the things. Allie, where can people find you? You can find me at Allie Gertz and all the things. And you can find us at Simpsons Pod. Yeah. And I uh, hope everybody that's listening to this is staying safe, healthy, and sane. <laughs> we'll see you guys on the flip. Round Springfield is a production of Maximum Fun. We're a member-supported show, so go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to contribute. Our booking manager is Jesus Ambrosio, and our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Swish. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.